Amen. Y'all have a seat. Thank you, Haley, for that prayer. And thank all of y'all for um, being here today in person or for joining us online. However you're here today, we're glad that you're here. Um, We understand not everybody's ready yet to get back to worshiping in person. We are open, all three services, um, and you can come visit us in person. You can visit thestory.church/rsvp to get your seat, and uh, we just pre-register to make sure we can abide by all of those um, protocols and safety regulations because we want to stay safe. We want to be responsible as we come back together. Those of you that are here, I'm so glad to see half your faces this morning, and I hope all of you have had a, a, just a tremendous Thanksgiving week, even though been different. It's been a different Thanksgiving this week for most of us, I assume, for all of us in some form or fashion. This Thanksgiving has been a curveball. This is not something we saw coming. This is not how we thought Thanksgiving 2020 would look at uh, the beginning of this year, you know. Um, and, And yet we still find reasons to hope. So I hope your Thanksgiving's been great. It's cool to sing Christmas songs. I don't know why, but this year I'm looking forward to Christmas more than any year in recent memory. I, I just, I'm ready to celebrate after the year that we've been through and hope you are as well. So whether you've been here for years or whether it's your first Sunday joining us at The Story, I'm so glad you're here. If you are new and checking out The Story for the first time, thank you truly from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to check out The Story. If you're looking for a, a faith community that's you know, not going to water things down for you or just give you pat answers to complex issues that you're facing. You, you can ask your questions here. You're welcome to, to really doubt here openly um, without fear of judgment. If you're not sure where you stand spiritually or theologically, the story can be a home for you, and I hope that you find a place here at the story. We set out almost, I guess, over five and a half years ago now to be a church that's all about Jesus. So we exist to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, not to make you more religious or more cookie-cutter Christian good boys and girls, but to, to, to ask questions about Jesus, to see who he really is, and to put our faith in him and him alone. We think Jesus can change lives, and he always has, and he continues to do that today. So that's what we are all about. That's what we're going to talk about some today as well. Um, Thanksgiving at the Huffman House was a little different this year. Uh, we didn't go and spend time with family. We usually go up to East Texas uh, or Southwest Arkansas and spend some time with family. Giovanna loves that. She's, uh, as a, a South American urbanite, she can't wait to get up to the Piney Woods of Northeast Texas. Um, she, uh, but but this, this year, she prepared Thanksgiving dinner. She did a feast for the first time. I didn't know she could cook. We've been married 21 years. I had no idea. But she did a great job and um, but this, you know, it was different. It was just us and, and uh, no extended family. But, you know, we can manage. It reminded me of some other Thanksgivings that have been different. One of the last Thanksgivings that I had with my grandma, who was kind of the matriarch of our family, her name was Virgie Merle. And uh, Virgie Merle, she wouldn't let us call her grandma. Uh, she would hit you if, <laughs> if you called her grandma. I'm not a grandma. I'm not old enough to be your grandma. Call me Virgie Merle. Whatever. So she would cook every Thanksgiving. And one Thanksgiving, my sort of my last memory of our Thanksgiving all together. She had made the perfect feast dressing, you know, with uh, the turkey and all that and everything, and it just looked perfect. And, and then we say the prayer, and we sit down to eat, and one of her daughters goes, Virgie, did you cut yourself? And she looks at her finger and goes, woo, that's what country women do, woo, where's that Band-Aid? 
<laughs> that noise y'all just made went all around the table <laughs> before we decided to dig in. Ugh, is it worth it? It was worth it. We ate it anyway. So <laughs> that Band-Aid never turned up. Anyway, I don't know why that story popped into mind. That just feels like what a 2020 Thanksgiving feels like. It's just this curveball, unexpected, you know, unsavory <laughs> kind of uh, surprise. Well, this year has been full of those. We're going to talk about that some today as well. You know, one thing that come to mind this year as I thought about this year is just how unfair it feels, the way life works sometimes. And unfair is the only word I could think of. I know it makes me sound a little entitled or a little childish to say, it's just not fair. That's how it feels sometimes. It's not fair the way the world works. Because sometimes a person's quality of life does not reflect the quality of their life choices, right? For good or evil. So, you know, I'm not saying I'm a saint, but I, I try, to, try to live a good life, try to make some good decisions, try to be a good dad, husband, and all that stuff, try to be a good pastor. And there are so many people I could list right now who have made far worse choices in their lives, but they have a far better life by many measures than than I do. Does that make anyone else upset? Like, not the fact that I'm on the, like, do you, you guys, like, you ever thought about that? And, and it works the other way too. Like, I haven't been a saint. I haven't been perfect. And there are people that I know who have made far better choices than me, who have just had one struggle after another. And that doesn't feel right either. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? So like somebody who smokes like a chimney and drinks like a fish their whole life, they live to the ripe old age of 90-something and they die peacefully at home, surrounded by family. And then somebody who's in their 30s that never touched the stuff, they die of cancer and, and it just seems, you know, indiscriminate. It just seems unfair. So, you know, the, the, the question I've been wrestling with is, is what do we do with, with that? And I'm not here to give you any pat answers. I don't believe there are any simple answers to this complex human condition that does seem unfair so much of the time. But what I would like to do is to talk to you about the one worldview that I believe honestly addresses the problem of unfairness and inequality without giving you some kind of reduced, reduced, you know, reduced simplistic answers, pat answers that you may be accustomed to hearing from people like me standing on a stage like this, frankly, all right? So I think that the gospel offers the best answer to the problem of the unfairness of life um, compared to all other worldviews, religious or secular, all right? So for a large part of my adulthood, I've lived with secular worldviews. So let's just think about this. What does the secular humanist worldview say about the problem of unfairness. Well, secular humanism says generally that life is unfair and, you know, random because the universe is unfair and random. It was never meant to be fair. There is no, no such thing as fair. There's no such thing as ultimate justice or ultimate truth. And so just accept it. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Make the most of it. Try your best to be happy in this life, and that's it. 
Now, the, uh, you know, that's not the only secular worldview, but like liberal Marxism would say, for example, like as a political construct, that the reason we have unfairness in this life is because the one percenters, the wealthy, powerful elites have created and maintained social systems that have oppressed everyone else. And until we dismantle, we rise up in revolution and dismantle those systems, there will not be fairness and equity, but once we do, there will be. We can have fairness and equity, utopia in this life, if we dismantle those unjust systems. You know, that's never worked out quite that way when that idea is employed, but that's the general belief. Other world religions look at the problem of unfairness and pain and suffering and say, generally, that someone who um, suffers more in this life than others do has probably sinned more in this life than others have or in a past life. And by sinning more, we have upset God or the gods and we have consequences to pay. Now, we can go to the temple or to the church or whatever and pay our dues, basically paying off God so that he's not mad at us anymore until we mess up again, then we start the whole thing over again. That's how religion works. Listen, that's not the gospel of Jesus. I wanna talk about the gospel of Jesus and how I think the gospel of Jesus offers the best, most coherent, most honest response to the problem of the unfairness of life um, in a way that I think is both emotionally satisfying and true to the human experience. And, and you can have one or the other with different worldviews, but I think with Jesus, with the gospel, we get both emotionally satisfying and true to the human experience, all right? So I'm gonna start biblically today by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter one. This is Paul's letter that he wrote in the early 50s of the first century, the early 50s AD. And as I read this, I'm gonna explain it, okay? So Paul said, Jews demand signs. By Jews, he means his people, that Paul was a Jewish man, his roots were Jewish. And so he says, we Jews demand signs or miracles. He's saying that without the miracles, without the show, Jews refuse to believe in, uh, in Jesus. And Greeks, and that's everybody else but the Jews. Greeks and Gentiles, interchangeable words. Okay, so this is most of us, right? We're Gentiles, most of us. Greeks look for wisdom. And that means rational arguments. I'm not gonna give my life to somebody unless they can make a convincing, compelling case for why I should rationally believe what they have to say. So Jews want miracles. Gentiles look for arguments or wisdom. But we Christians, Paul is saying, preach Christ crucified. That's a key word. That's a key phrase. Christ crucified. He's speaking in code here. Christ is a word that literally meant Savior or Messiah. Crucified is an image that brought to mind words like curse and damnation. And this is because, you know, uh, in the Bible, it says, I'll get to that in just a second, but, but we have Christ crucified or, or cursed Messiah, damned Savior is what Jesus, we preach a damned Savior, which is a, a, a stumbling block or uh, that actually means more like uh, a scandal. The Greek word is skandalon. Uh, a scandal, it is offensive to Jews who would believe in a damned savior. That's not the way we envision the Messiah, the Jews would say. And it is foolishness 
to Gentiles. So it's absurd to believe in a savior who died on a cross, absurd. No one in their right mind would believe in a cursed Messiah. And so, but to those whom God has called as Christians, both Jews and Greek Christians, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So what's fascinating about this idea is that the curse Jesus died under was God's curse. And it comes from the Bible itself, Deuteronomy 21, 23, which says clearly in the law of Moses that anyone who hangs and dies from a pole or on a pole or on a tree or on a cross dies under the curse of God. Listen, there's a reason. Jesus died the way that he did. I'm gonna circle back to that later, but right now I want you to know Jesus died under his own prescribed curse, all right? So what Paul is saying is that the best answer to the problem of unfairness, inequality, and pain and suffering in this life is a Messiah who suffered unequally. A Messiah who, though God himself, died under God's curse. A Messiah who knew what it was like live and die in darkness. All right, so the, 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 the point here being that it, it, Christianity truly is a different kind of worldview. So with this series, uh, this is called the 2020 Christmas, um, <laughs> The Weary World Rejoices is the, the subtitle. We're looking at this problem through the lens of the Psalms. It's this giant book in the middle of your Bible. You've probably thumbed through it once or twice. You probably know Psalm 23, for example, and maybe a few others. But all the people of, of the Old Testament, the Jewish people knew all the Psalms. They were, uh, they are a collection of 150 poems, prayers, and songs that were written as early as 1000 BC. The oldest ones were 10th century BC. 73 of the 150 Psalms were penned by King David in the 10th century BC. And then throughout the next four centuries, the other Israelite leaders who wrote Psalms wrote the other 77. But it was a crisis. It was a dark year in 597 BC that, that really spurred the, the compilation of the Psalms. They didn't exist as one book until 597 BC. And in the 60 years that followed that dark year, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and incinerated the temple and left the people homeless, hopeless, and thousands of them in exile in Babylon, it's in that time of being scattered Socially distanced, afraid, alone, terrorized, traumatized, that the Hebrew people decided to compile the Psalms together during that 60-year time period, okay? And so um, what, we, what we have there are reminders uh, to the people that though the, uh, though, though the world has turned upside down, God has not forgotten them, all right? So when we look at 2020, I think we can resonate with that kind of feeling. Now, it's not as, we haven't lived a year that's quite as traumatic as, I think, a Babylonian conquest and exile, but it's been traumatic. 2020 has been one indiscriminate tragedy after another. Indiscriminate being the operative word there, because it's not like most people that have suffered this year have brought it on themselves. 
I mean, think about the people you've seen or known who have died of this awful disease. And the way you die from this disease is traumatic and, and we are traumatized people. You're Texans, you don't want to admit that, I understand. You, Texans don't get traumatized, okay, whatever. But I think you know the truth. We're living as traumatized people, we're, we're running on fumes every day. 2020 has, has done a number on us, not just the pandemic, but the political circus we were all uh, just you know, exposed to. We had no choice in the matter. It was just in front of us, constantly media lies, one after the other, one side of the political aisle or the other. The media lied to us all year, and it was confusing and frustrating. It, it, was, it was the year, 2020 was the year we all learned about something called murder hornets, which is a horrifying thing to hear about, but to see them, they're two inches long, and they can kill you if enough of them get to you. 2020 was the year of the locust plague, Exodus-style plague, y'all, in Africa this year. 2020 was the year that Americans were forced to talk to our parents and our grandparents like this for months on end. 2020 was the year that millions of graduates graduated something like this. 2020 was the year that millions of babies were born like this, still a joy, but it's not how we imagined it. It's not how we planned it. But what can we learn from a year like this? What can the Psalms teach us? Well, the way I'm approaching this series is looking at the Psalms through the lens of Jesus, because 600 years after they were written, Jesus is quoting this book more than any other book in the Old Testament. It's wild. Not only how much Jesus loved the Psalms and quoted them from memory, it's wild how much the Psalms foretold about Jesus, although they were written 600 to 1,000 years before his life and his death. So last week I talked about one of the Psalms that Jesus quoted from the cross as he died in his final breaths. He quoted Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. And today I wanna to talk about the one he quoted just before that. We find that quote in Matthew 27. as he hanged on the cross. Verses 45 to 46 say, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, not everyone knows Jesus wasn't just feeling this way. He was quoting an ancient psalm, words that King David wrote and sang a thousand years before Jesus quoted them from the cross. In Psalm 22, we find King David's words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. So the question I want you to think about is why Jesus chose this psalm to quote. Clearly, I guess he he had thought about quoting these psalms from the cross to send a message, maybe. I don't think it was just an impulsive decision. I think he probably had thought it through, and he, he quoted this one in Psalm 31. But why these psalms? Why not something happier? Why not Psalm 23? That would have been more pleasant. Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a mystery. And as we talked about last week, it's layered. Jesus' words are always layered with meaning. Like, that's why he never ages. It's why he never gets old. 
because you keep finding new things in his words. And I see it a number of layers in my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? First, superficially, I think he's actually in agony. And in some cosmic mystery, the son of God, God himself actually felt forsaken by God as he bled out, as he suffered, as he experienced pain most of us can't imagine, as his body went into shock, as he struggled to breathe. I think somehow God, Jesus may have felt God forsaken on some level for just a moment. So I think that's one of the reasons why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's not the only reason. It's clearly not the only reason. The second layer of this, of meaning here, I think is, is just the same as last week with Jesus throwing some shade on his enemies here. Like he is actually acknowledging the presence of his enemies. And you have to envision the scene to get to what I'm talking about. The crucifixion obviously was a dark scene, the darkest day in human history. Literally the darkness rolled in in the hours as he died. And, and, and his enemies were there. The ones who put him there, who wanted him there all along were there to say, we won, he lost. He is who we thought he was. He's a heretic. He's a criminal. And we're here to watch him die. And they mocked him as he died. And so Jesus actually said the, the first line of a, of, a, of a song that they knew the rest of. And you have to know, remember how music works on our memories. You probably, like the Jews in the first century, you probably have 150 songs at least that you know well enough that if you hear the first line, you at least hum the next one. But you probably know some songs well enough that if you hear the first line, you can sing the rest of the lyrics. And such was the case with Jesus' enemies, his religious enemies, who wanted him on that cross. And so when he sang, or when he, when he sang the first line of Psalm 22, by the way, he probably did sing it, if you can imagine that, him struggling to breathe and trying to find the strength to sing a tune that he had sung since childhood. I wanted you to get a sense of this because I think it will help you grasp what I'm talking about. So Jesus actually sang this. Uh, I found a clip, a seven-second clip of a Hebrew, uh, a Jewish rabbi singing this same psalm. Um, and uh, in, in Hebrew, you'll hear it uh, toward the end of this little clip, Eli, Eli, listen for that, and that's the part we're talking about. So let's just take a listen to what this might have sounded like. Did you hear it? Eli, Eli, lama safatani, or something. Jesus sang that line evoking the memories of his hearers, all right? So it worked like it would with any song, right? So uh, let's think of a popular song like we did last week. So uh, a song that you guys would know, uh, the, the stars at night are... That's it. Okay, you got it. Okay, you know what I mean then, right? So we can get, we can get Christmassy with this too. Uh, Make my wish come true. Oh. 
Okay, you guys are good. Okay, uh, that's good. If you couldn't hear me online, they nailed it. Nailed it in the room. Okay, I hope you did at home as well. I hope you're ready to hear that song 500,000 times between now and December 25th. So if you can imagine that scene, as Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then the rest of that song came to mind for his mother who was in front of him, his best friend who was beside her, and his enemies who mocked him. And what did they recall? Let's look at the rest of Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Bulls were symbols of one of Israel's um, enemies. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Wow. How many things did you just hear were actually happening in real time? As Jesus died on the cross, they mock me, they insult me, my bones are on display, I thirst. Jesus was speaking not just to his own pain, he was speaking to those who were there watching him die. Third and most importantly, I think there's a deeper layer here that's resonating for us today still if we receive it. The third layer of Jesus' words, I think, speak of his empathy for us. His empathy for you, for anyone who's ever felt forsaken, for anyone who's ever felt abandoned, shortchanged, isolated, forgotten as if life has treated you unfairly. I think there's a reason Jesus died the way that he did. He didn't just die for our sins, right? He didn't just die for, you know, these crimes that he didn't commit. He died under the curse of Deuteronomy 23 on purpose to show you and me and every one of us and everyone who's ever lived and ever known him to remind us that whenever you think you're cursed, you're not. No curse of this world can have you because God's own curse died with Jesus. <laughs> no kind of damnation awaits you if Jesus died under the curse to set you free. 
Jesus died the way that he did for a reason to show you that even when you're at your darkest, most desperate hour, even when you feel like this downturn will never turn up again, to remind you that the worst thing that could happen already happened. The most unfair moment in human history already occurred and it only took three days for God to redeem the most unfair moment in history to make it a blessing. The most redemptive moment in human history. Even when you feel forgotten, he hasn't forsaken you. Even when it hurts, He'll redeem the pain. He'll redeem the pain. I didn't say he'll take it away. He never said that either, but he'll redeem it. With the rest of this time, I'll spend about five more minutes talking about what that actually looks like. Look, in the gospel worldview, this life we're living right now is a prelude. It's a prelude, a foretaste, It's like the previews before the movie. There's something else, something better, something far greater than this blink of an eye moment we get on this spinning rock called planet Earth. There's something far greater awaiting us. And so maybe God is using this limited time we have on this earth as a time of preparation. Maybe this is a time of testing. Maybe, maybe, the goals we've set, the expectations we've had for comfort. Maybe that's never been the point. Maybe being comfortable should never have been our aim at all. Maybe there's actually something good and worthy about seasons of pain that we can't fully see until we pass through them and look back. Maybe the pain is a blessing too. Maybe the, the curse, if there is one, is comfort that makes us soft and vulnerable and weak. I've uh, been greatly blessed by this pastor uh, who lives, he's in a, in a different city, um, but in his 30s, man, his, his like ministry was taken off. His platform was growing. His churches were growing and, and his name was everywhere, but he wasn't leaning into that whole celebrity pastor vibe. And I really appreciated that about him. He didn't let it change him. He just kept preaching the gospel and doing it the right way. And it was about the time that I came back from my Holy Land trip in 2013. And I was trying to reconstruct my faith after many years of doubt that I had discovered his preaching and he was such an influence on me. But when he was 36 years old, he, he was playing with his daughter on the floor and he got a really bad headache, blacked out, woke up in the hospital. And within a few days, he was told he had a, a brain tumor, cancer cancer at 36, brain cancer. He had a, a, a brain surgery within a few days and uh, he faced a year's worth of intense chemotherapy. During that time, he continued as much as he could to preach the gospel every week in his church, even though he was pale and frail and bald from the chemo, he kept preaching. And he preached all the way through until the end. And at the end of his chemo, he went in for his test and they found him to be cancer-free. And it was just this joyful moment for me and everybody loves this guy. And, and yet I'll never forget hearing him talk about that season 
and how he was grateful for it. Thank you, God, for cancer. But he said, I've never been closer to God. I've never had a greater understanding of what this life means and what we're doing here than when I was going through chemo and facing the possibility of my death. That time might have looked like a curse, but it was really such a blessing. This, this pastor, Matt Chandler, he's, he's had such a great impact on me and he's, he's uh, helped me to see how God doesn't just forgive the shame of your past. God will take that and he will use it to make you into the person he wants you to be. He will use it to employ you for his kingdom. Listen, I spent 13 years being just angry at Christians, especially conservative white Christians. Some of y'all don't believe me, but I was, I was vitriolic, hateful, uh, just kind of a liberal social justice activist person. And I hated suburban white conservative Christians. And I made fun of them. And I always found reasons to poke holes in the Bible. I was arrogant, even though I was deeply insecure, deeply depressed. I was wrapped up in lust and addicted to the pornography and stuff. And, and all of that is just to my shame. But what I see now is that Jesus, by dying on the cross, didn't just forgive my indiscretions. He didn't just forgive my iniquities. Jesus took the curse and the consequences with him to the grave. And when he rose from the grave victorious, he gave, gave us the power to rise above our past. And his Holy Spirit gives us the power to employ the shame of our past, to speak to people in our present. Like when I'm in front of someone who's angry at Christians, I know exactly how they feel. There's good reasons to be angry at Christians. And I know that language because of what I've been through. When I'm in front of someone who's wrapped up in lust and addiction, I know that struggle. I've been down that rabbit hole. I know what it's like to go in that cycle of shame and self-hatred, I can speak to that with authenticity. The shame of my past isn't just a shame. It isn't just forgiven. It is redeemed. That's what Jesus does. That's what makes the gospel different. One of Jesus's top disciples actually articulated this in a letter called First Peter, um, this is from 1 Peter 5.10. And Peter said, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you in to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen, if you feel forsaken, afraid, if you feel forgotten, isolated, cursed, I promise you, God, has not damned you, cursed you, judged you, or set you aside. God is not here today to make you feel bad about the life you've lived. He's here today to restore and redeem your mistakes, to serve him in his kingdom, to let the world know that we can trust him with our pain. And our pain will see his presence like never before. 
We can trust him with our vices. He will show us and give us every victory. We can trust him when we feel like life is unfair because nothing more unfair has happened to you than what happened to Jesus on the cross and he redeemed even that. I pray that you'll give your heart all of your pain and your shame to Jesus this morning and let him redeem it and set you free to serve him in the world today. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we thank you for this season and this reminder, really, this reminder that every curse is broken. Lord, that even when we walk through the fires of this life, you're there with us. When the waters come up to our necks, you are our life preserver. When we can't make sense of the unfairness of life, you are our wisdom. When we are broken, frail, pale, and weak, Lord, you restore us. For your weakness is greater than our strength. Your foolishness is smarter than our wisdom. We put our lives in your hands give you our vices. We claim your victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.